Let's uh, turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 11 in the time that we have left. Revelation and uh, verse 15 to the end. Revelation 11 at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your uh, rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of uh, his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, I said uh, last week, mistakenly, that uh, uh, we would have one more sermon before our Christmas service, uh, before our Christmas sermons got going in earnest, but uh, actually today is the day when we will begin our uh, Christmas sermons, as it were, uh, because this passage that we have today is very... Uh, uh, it has very much a Christmas theme thanks to uh, a great composer in the past, George Frederick Handel, who included a verse that we're going to look at here this morning in his great uh, oratorio, The Messiah. And uh, uh, Handel composed The Messiah to talk about the coming of Jesus into the world. It has become associated with Christmas and most famously, the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, at which uh, at the end of that, uh, during the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, George II stood up and began to applaud. And it's become customary ever since that when the Hallelujah Chorus is sung, the, the auditorium will rise to their feet. And uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, YouTube videos is uh, uh, one of, uh, you've seen these flash mob videos on, uh, YouTube where people start singing in uh, a food court or something like that. Well, there was one in Welland, Ontario a few years ago uh, where uh, a well-placed uh, choir in, through the food court, they would start to sing uh, the, um, Handel's Messiah. And it's beautiful because it really places God's praises in the marketplace. And that's what really struck me. People wearing not, uh, you know, uh, bows and ties or uh, tuxedos and nice dresses, but people with just coats and jackets and boots and so on, but with beautiful voices singing out Messiah. So you'll have to look that up uh, on YouTube. But uh, Handel said when he uh, was writing this, as he came upon these words, uh, these words in particular, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So you know those words, and he shall reign forever and ever. You can look it up on YouTube. They won't sing it as nice as I just sung it for you, but, but you, can, you can look it up and it's, it's really lovely. And so he said there when he, he, um, 
when he came upon those words, he says, I did think I did see heaven before me and the great God Himself. And so in these words, he had, he had come to have a, a glimpse or a vision of heaven, not through some out-of-body experience or some vision, but by reading the Word of God alone. And really, that says a lot for us. Handel is expressing for us what it means to engage with the Word by faith. The effect that the Bible should have upon us. I did think I did see heaven before me and the great God Himself. Right there. And, and each time we come to church, this ought to be our the way in which we engage with Scripture. It's as if I were transported into the very throne room of God. And that's certainly what we're seeing here in this uh, passage. Uh, the seventh trumpet is now sounded. It says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. Now, let me remind you how Revelation is uh, repeated. That the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and everything in between that and now is told in cycles. It's told once, up until chapter 7, where we get a vision of heaven and all the saints of God are gathered. They're free from war and pestilence and demonic activity. They're gathered in heaven, a great number, a great multitude which no man can number, or put in, a, 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 in, in, in from another way of looking at it, the 144,000, which is the same group of people. And they're there gathered safely home. That's in chapter 7. But now, through, that, that was with the seals that were being opened up. Now, then God went into a series of trumpets that were sounded, right? Seven trumpets. And He tells the same story over again, concluding in the same way with the saints of God gathered in heaven, world history coming to a final conclusion. And we'll see the same with the vials. World history again uh, uh, put forth for us, ending in the glories of heaven and the ingathering of God's people. That's often how Hebrews spoke. They repeated something. They emphasized it by repeating it again and again. And so really what we have in Revelation is three sections all telling the same events but emphasizing certain things in, in a different way. So, we come to the second, the end of the second cycle. The second series of sevens. You remember, the idea of seven in the Bible speaks of perfection. And when it uses the word seven, or when it puts things across to us in sevens, it's saying God's plan is perfect. So that's the idea behind the, 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 uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, figure of seven. Perfect. So we look at the first cycle, and we say, perfect. We look at the second cycle, perfect. We look at the third, perfect. And so through that, we are encouraged to say we're molded and shaped by that to 
say, look, even though this is the world I'm living in, with all the war and famine and evil and demonic activity, yet infused into all of that is the perfect plan of God for the world and for my own life. And in that I can face whatever I need to, and as we were seeing, Christians are facing horrific things in this world. We are not in the majority. This is not normal, what you're seeing here in terms of what the, the, the church is dealing with around the world. This is out of the ordinary. The Christian church, by and large, in the majority, lives in countries where they are persecuted. And so, so do not enjoy the freedom, perhaps, to come and go and worship as we do here. And so, uh, what we're looking at here, with the seventh trumpet, is the end of history. Just as when we got to the end of chapter 7, what did we see? The end of history. Well, you say, well, why is he, how can you have the end of history two or three times in the same book? Isn't that, no, it's because it's telling it again and again and again. And so uh, we see that here in verse 18 because it talks about the fact that the time for the dead to be judged has come and the time for the rewarding of God's people to come as well. So, what we're looking at in this final section here of chapter 11, or the final trumpet, is the end of history. In the chapters to come, it's going to reboot and start telling it over again in, with slightly different emphases and different information. Uh, we referenced with the trumpets, when we began to look at the trumpets, the trumpets that were blown uh, in Jericho. And how at the end of uh, that, those seven days as they marched around, they blew the trumpets, they gave a great shout, and the walls of Jericho came down, and the city was destroyed, and the land was taken. Here as well, it says the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And it subsequently describes the end of one stage and the beginning of another. The end of this sin-filled, wicked world as we know it, and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth as we will know it. And the vision that John has here has roots already in things that have already happened. They have roots in history. Going back, like I said, to Moses, going back to Joshua, going back to all of these things which happened historically, really happened. And John is now, in vision form, saying... These things are going to happen now, not on a localized level, like just in Jericho, but they're going to expand globally, cosmically, around the world. And that's what we're living in now. We're caught up in that. 
We're part of that whole drama. So what Revelation is doing is saying, this is world history in vision form. And as we pull apart what all of those symbols mean, we start to see our place in it. And we see that in those words there in verse 18, both small and great. In other words, they are going to be rewarded, as we will see, those who are small. You may consider yourself very small. You may not think of yourself as one of the big major movers and shakers in, in the worldwide church. But the Bible says, as small as we are, we're part of it. We're right there in verse 18. That's not to say you are small, but you may cons- think of yourself as that. And so I say that so that we're not off in dreamland saying, well, this is just too far out there for me, and this has nothing to do with my life Monday to Sunday. But it does. It does. And so they, so the seventh trumpet is sounded, and God's glory is being proclaimed here. There were loud voices in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So we're seeing something final. We're not, we're not seeing a comma with more evil to proceed afterwards. We're not seeing uh, you know, the kingdoms coming and God, Jesus winning and then only to allow evil to be let loose again. No. The kingdoms of the world that are against God have been completely subdued. They have become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Again, that's why we say this is something that describes not a gap, not a comma, but a period with an exclamation. And so the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And so, is it any wonder that uh, Handel included that in his great oratorio? That bringing to conclusion the great the prophecies of the Old Testament, which he did. He starts off in Isaiah 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. 800 years before. And now Handel is concluding with the consummation of all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he praises him for his universal reign. Kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our, uh, of, uh, our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. Simply put, all the kingdoms of the world that are against God. And that is, as I said, referenced for us way back a thousand years before Jesus in Psalm uh, uh, 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. So we're seeing two figures there. The Lord and His anointed. How do you figure that? Well, 
Revelation is saying it here. The Lord and His Christ. The language is intentional. Because what John is seeing here in vision form, as the last trumpet is sounded, is Jesus completely subduing the nations. Now how do you look at the nations? We can look at the nations in two ways. We can look at the nations one way, in both the same way. In rebellion against God. That's just part of human nature. It's the way it is. It's not just the nations out there, but it's the nation of Canada, nation in the United States. All the nations, through their man-centered, anti-God perspective, we will not have this man to reign over us. Who said that? The Jews said that. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the Greeks. It wasn't the Romans. And I say that to say, well, that rebellion was coming from within God's own people. That hatred of God and, and God's anointed was coming from Herod and Pilate and the people of Israel. Now that is also that also spills over into the nations of the world. I say that to say, well, are, are we playing favorites here of Israel versus the world? No, we're not. Because it takes everyone in, including you and I, at some point in our lives. And so, what John is seeing at the end of all of this, at the end of the worldwide spread of the Gospel, as the witnesses go out with the Gospel, evangelizing uh, the world, the final trumpet is sounded, right? When the last soul is won, when the last one is brought into the fold, that Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of that, this fold, I must bring those in as well. And when that last lamb comes through the door, then the trumpet sounds. And you see a consummation of all things. And the kingdoms of the world are finally subdued. The kingdoms that are in rebellion against God. And Jesus becomes the king over them. And so you, we can think of some of the great empires that did fall under God's uh, uh, power. The Egyptians that were... Uh, when, when Israel came up under the hand of Moses, the ten plagues, God judged the Egyptians, the Babylonians, uh, and, and so on. All of these empires was God saying, there is a day coming when all opposition, all evil will be dealt with. And friends, we rejoice in that. It's grievous when you turn on the news. It's horrible when you see people suffering and you see evil running rampant in the world. It's heartbreaking. And we ask, where will it end? Will it end when men become more educated? Will it end when we redistribute the wealth a little more equally? Will it end when we become all a little bit more enlightened, as Nietzsche said, and, and many of the great philosophers have said, we've tried that, we've been there, we've bought the t-shirt, it did not work. These things do not work. And the Bible is saying, 
it will only be solved when Jesus Christ returns and he subdues, just as he had to subdue my heart. I am part of this world system that was against God. And God came in and he subdued my heart and he changed me. He gave me a new spirit. He caused me to be born again and love God rather than hate God. You see, it's not just them out there. We are the nations. We are the people. In that sense, in our unnatural, in our, in our natural bent toward God. But here, he says, we give thanks to you, Lord Almighty. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We see kingdoms rise and come and go, but Jesus' kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. The Bible tells us that. It won't be, won't be one of many. It will be the kingdom. And it will reign forever and ever. We are swept up into eternity here. This is what we're looking at. Something that will never end. It will never, there will be nothing in it to corrupt. That's why it will last forever. There will be no sin. There will be no rebellion. There will be no hatred. Kingdoms will come and go because there is corruption in the world. One king will destroy another. Disease will wipe out another population and so that kingdom will die out. But this kingdom will last forever and ever because all corruption will be gone as we saw in Revelation 7. God will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more thirst. They will be saved even from the scorching heat of the sun. It's picturing for us a kingdom where there is nothing to cause one to go to war against another. One to bring corruption. One to bring down or, 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 or to turn one on another person. Because Jesus himself has done it. He has fulfilled it. During his earthly ministry, Jesus resist, resisted the, the temptation of the kingdoms, didn't he? Remember? The devil came to him in a temptation and he said, If you worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Jesus knew that if he did that, if he took the shortcut and simply took it there apart from the cross, he would be inheriting kingdoms just like Pharaoh, just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like Caesar, where the people were hateful, warring against one another, where there'd be sickness and disease. Jesus knew that that's not the kind of kingdom he was sent to win, nor was that the kind of kingdom he wanted. He wanted a kingdom of love. He wanted a kingdom of peace. He wanted a kingdom of holiness. And he knew that the only way to achieve that kingdom was to go through the cross where all the things that caused those he would have to deal with. The necessity of the cross. That's why Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. For you desire the things that be of man and not of God. Man, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. He was, Jesus knew that he didn't want a kingdom 
just like Charlemagne or Alexander the Great or Attila the Hun or any of these others. The foundations of his kingdom would be justice and righteousness, holiness and love. That's why the announcement of Jesus, He shall reign over the throne of His father David, but also He will have to go to the cross to do it. This is what they're praising Him for. They're not praising Him simply because He's a God of, of power and that, through his, that He is stronger than the others and ultimately He will win out. No. Early on in the book and all throughout Revelation, it says, You are worthy! Oh Lord, for you were what? Slain. And by your blood you purchased men for God. It cost God. It cost God His own Son to create this everlasting kingdom of peace. That's why He's called the Prince of Peace. Because it cost him physically. His body was torn to shreds. Nails were put in his hands and feet. He became the sacrifice for our sins. Because he looked forward. He was never more a king than when he had that crown of thorns on his head. He was never more a king when the nails were driven into his hands. Because he was dying for his people. He was making them into the kinds of people He wanted to rule and reign over. Not rebellious, not hateful, not evil and prejudice and all the rest of it. So Paul says that God has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. This is what they're praising Him for. We thank You, Lord God Almighty, who is and was. Notice He doesn't say, who is to come. Why? Because He has come. And this is the end. He's not saying, who is, who was, and who is to come, which He said earlier on in the book. But now His kingdom has come, and He has begun to reign. That means He has begun to reign unopposed. That the full expression of the kingdom is now here. Does that mean that God is not in control now? No, that's not what it means. It means that his full, the full expression of His power is now seen in the subduing of the nations, in putting away all evil, and ushering in an eternal kingdom of peace. The nations raged, but Your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged. And so here we have expression of His universal reign, but then we see His universal judgments. The nations raged. Again, it's not hard to see how that is intentionally going back to Psalm 2. And how the Bible ties itself in so beautifully. That's what shows itself to be the Word of God, friends. No other book in the world verifies itself internally like the Bible through prophecy and fulfillment like the Bible does. You can have teaching in other books, but you don't have the same internal verification. And God 
says that to the people. What other God foretells the future and it comes to pass? This is what God says in Isaiah. And so he brings these uh, judgments. People raged, but your wrath came. And we'll look at that in a moment. And uh, we'll, we'll come back to the first part of verse 18. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. In other words, at the end of time, the Bible says there will be a day of judgment. The judgment of all the earth. Small and great, powerful, educated, uneducated, will be brought before God's throne. And they will be judged. And it tells us that the servants of God, those who believed the gospel message, people from every nation of the world, no matter what color or language or background, we're not talking about some nationalistic religion here. We're talking about a universal uh, expression. But those saints, and I would say especially the non-Western countries, especially the non-Canadian, American, British, will receive the greater measure of those rewards. Because now, as it stands, those Christians are standing fiercely with their lives, with their blood, for the gospel. The rewarding of your servants, the prophets. It talks about the prophets and the apostles. Jesus said of Jerusalem that they stoned the prophets. And that almost all the apostles met a martyr's death. But even since that time, millions and millions of Christians and especially in the 20th century. More people died for the gospel in the 20th century up until this right now than all the centuries combined before that. That's extraordinary. And all of these saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. In other words, you don't have to be a great mover and shaker like I said at the beginning. To be a part of this. You could be a faithful father and mother who pray for your children who may not be coming to faith, who may be hardening their heart and yet you're there still praying, pouring out your heart to God for them. These are the saints, both small and great. Those saints who go unrecognized in the work of the Gospel and the work of the Kingdom. Giving what they can to the work of the Kingdom around the world. Praying for certain situations regardless of what it looks like, they're persevering. People who in a generation from now might be forgotten. Just as many people who sat in the pews that you're sitting in are now forgotten. We don't know their names, but God doesn't forget them. Because they are the small. They are the great. Who served God in their day and generation. God doesn't forget. He puts every tear in a bottle. He remembers every tear that's shed. And so He rewards that faithful mother, that faithful father, 
a faithful son or daughter who out of, as it says here, fear of His name, the trust in Him, served God. Sometimes at great cost. And it's a beautiful thing that we're seeing here. Because God is saying, all heaven is saying, the 24 elders are saying, everybody is saying, He remembers. He sees. The tears, the broken heart, the late nights, the years of unanswered prayer. He sees that. And the time has come for rewarding of the prophets and the saints and those who fear Your name, both small and great down to the least of these. Let's parade them out. That's what God is saying. Let's lift them up. Let's let's show them. Let's vindicate them for what they've done. That what they did right. As small as it might have been. So Jesus says, He who gives a glass of water to one of these little ones in My name will by no means lose their reward. So for the rewarding of the saints and those who fear your name. But then it also says the, the, the opposite there in verse 18. The nations who raised, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. He's speaking of the opposite thing here. That just as the saints will receive their reward for serving God, so there will come a day of judgment upon those who rejected God, rejected God's plan, rejected God's Gospel. And friends, as I've said before time and again, that especially comes down not to people in foreign lands who have never heard the Gospel. It's not going to be severe as severe for them as for those who have heard and have rejected. There cannot be a greater contempt for God than to sit in a church week by week by week and say, no, no, no. You are a liar, God. I don't believe that. That is contemptible. I, that's not for me. I'm better than that. I've, got my, I, I've lived a good life. I'm a good son, good daughter, good this or that. And what we say to God in all of that is we say, you're wrong. Bible says, let's call it what it is, which is what John does in his first epistle. We call him a liar when we have not believed the report he has given of his own son. And so friends, that means that this morning we can be taking our stand with the nations of the world. We can be taking our stand with those who will be swallowed up in the wrath of Jesus. In his just wrath. We're not talking about a God who is temperamental here. We're not just talking about a God whose anger just flashes out when he's upset. Friends, the human race has been going on for a very long time. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years. What ought to amaze us is God's restraint in the evil that we're seeing in the world. Because so many people are crying out, Lord, how long before you come back? Lord, how long can you put up with this? 
craziness, the sin that's in the world. So God is not someone, God is a God of patience. God waits. God, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Maybe it's that way with you this morning. You're still here. Here you are another Sunday hearing the Gospel. What will you do with it? God is giving you another chance to say, I believe. I trust that, that your plan makes sense of the world. Makes sense of the human condition. Makes sense of history. There's no one com comparable to Jesus Christ. The Word of God makes sense as the Old and New Testaments fit like a hand in a glove and it all makes sense to me now and I will come, O oh God. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. You're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdoms of the world, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdom that is described for us here. The kingdom that Handel wrote about in his great oratorio. That oratorio that brought King George to his feet in applause would to God that it would do so for you this morning in your heart as you yourself hear and read the same words that Handel wrote that you too might be gripped with the same majesty the same beauty, the same power that he was gripped with and as if I could see heaven itself. This is how we respond to the Word of God. This is how we imitate Handel. This is how we imitate as we not only read, but engage and we believe on the Messiah that He has given. The Messiah that heaven itself that Jesus, that the, not only Jesus, but the apostles and the prophets and the Psalms and Moses, going back 1,500 years before Jesus, they all are saying the same thing. That He shall reign and of His kingdom there will be no end. And He shall sit on the throne of His father David. And He will swallow up the kingdoms of the world. That is how we observe Christmas. Not with bows and boxes and all of these things, but falling at the feet of the One who was born, died, risen again, and who, according to God's Word, will come again in majestic glory and every eye will see Him. And He will judge you in righteousness. And that means that this morning you are by faith to be clothed with His righteous garments. To put on the Lord Jesus by faith. And to come with great joy into His everlasting kingdom. If King George sprung to his feet with great gusto and thanks and praise, then we can do no less. Let us pray.